Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. Okay, Josh Watson, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm awesome, Hawkey. Good to good to be with you, mate. Yeah, good to see you, mate. I'm just I'm going through my or well, our 2000 Olympic team, trying to document some stories. You're you're the next on my list, mate. <laughs> so, <laughs> listen, where, where are you coming from now? I've been in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, for about two and two and a quarter years. My wife and I moved over in January 2019. Uh, I'd been working for a, a sports equipment company back home since 2013, and we sponsor the uh, National Amateur Boxing Program. So uh, we sort of got to the point where we outgrew Australia. The name of the company Sting. Most people would have heard of it back home. Um, and, yeah, we just were over here now and just trying to make good on some of our sort of international investments. So it's been a great adventure. Um, I wouldn't take anything back, even with what's happened with COVID. We've, um, we've had a great time. Matter that's interesting. I'll, I'll get into that for sure in terms of how you got into that. But in terms of the company, like what, what do you do exactly? So Sting is a boxing sport, like sports equipment, boxing gloves, right. you know, protective equipment. So we um, in the amateur space, we're pretty high up in the in the world. Like um, our gear was used at the Rio Olympics, uh, the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, other World Championships. So pretty well regarded in, the, in that space of sort of boxing and, and fitness equipment. So is it an Australian uh, company originally? Yeah, yeah, based in Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So, um, so you're just a family business. They just they do what they do very well. They do it reasonably on a on a small scale um, internationally. But um, I think people the right sort of opportunities tend to come our way because we we offer a good product. But the process we take a customer through is pretty is pretty strong too. So, how'd you end up in Atlanta then with the with the family based company from Melbourne? So I, I um out of out of retiring from sport, um, I bounced around with a few different jobs, like really didn't have, you know, anything sort of concrete or anything that was sort of challenging me. And I remember I applied for this, this job and, you know, seeks like they don't give you a whole lot of information. Mm. I knew it was sports equipment. I knew it was a state, a state manager role for Queensland. Um, and, and honestly, I, I applied for this job. And, and I remember a guy, the guy ringing me, um, Dan, who was my boss at the time. And I'd forgotten that I'd, applied for it and so it didn't come across real real well but I was like huh, who's this um and to be honest it was just athlete attitude that got me the job I had no experience in selling mm. I mean person to person interaction that sort of stuff um mate you know what we're like as athletes we're, we're yeah. pretty driven at an individual level we're not great you know think about other people and what they sort of need yeah and so but it was just I just kept ringing him to see you know who got the job who got the job and in the end I got the job and mm. and um that was in 2013 and I just, you know, managed Queensland really well, got the national gig and, uh, and then the opportunity came to come overseas and I just jumped at it. That's awesome, mate. Now, is it strictly boxing? Is, it, is there MMA stuff as well yet? Yeah, we've got an MMA range, not in, in the States yet, which is, um, it, it'll come definitely because MMA in, in America is, is enormous. Like it's, mm. it's frightening the difference between, um, you know, where the sport sits in the totem pole to back home. Yeah. And, and we've got a, a basic sort of range, but um, yeah, we'll definitely look to, to put something a little bit more serious into the market here. Oh, that's super cool, mate. Well, listen, just back to... Just, 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 just quickly on that though. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're a Conor McGregor fan, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm wavering. I'm in and out of it, you know? Sometimes yeah, look, I love I him, it. sometimes I hate I, him. I, I, I get it. I, um, I, I mean, he brought me into MMA. 
one of my one of my best mates who's a swimmer got me into MMA or tried to get me into MMA. And this was before sort of stand up striking yeah. became a thing. And uh, you know, it was all I remember. I can't remember how many fights I watched where you know eighty percent of it was on the ground and these two mm-hmm. people wrestling. I was like, this is boring as hell. Yeah. And then he comes along and knocks people out in ten seconds. I'm like, I'm yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's I don't know his behavior. Yeah, yeah his he, his behavior sometimes you know stresses me a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. You know, like I, I'm a big fan of Dustin Poirier and they're supposed to fight. Mm-hmm. And um, just the way he's handled that recently, I'm like, I just didn't, I didn't love what he's doing there with, with Dustin. But I hope they get to fight again in the trilogy. I think that'd be super cool. But yeah, I love yeah. MMA. I've, I've, I've been to a number of um, contests. I went to Connor's last fight, um, the one that had uh, an audience at it anyway. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I love it. It's awesome. And um, yeah, me too. We'd love to do see, see more of it. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, um, so just in terms of you and I, I mean, we, we have a, a long history together in terms of just knowing each other. Uh, I don't know where we first met, but it was probably somewhere to do with sort of New South Wales. I mean, we, we both grew up in New South Wales in Australia. And um, how old are you these days? 43. 43, okay, yeah, I'm 45. Yeah. So I mean, I'm just a little bit older than you. So we were probably yeah. in the same circles for a, a many years and traveled. we traveled the world. I remember yeah. many trips we traveled the world together. <laughs> but just in terms of swimming, where did it start for you? So I think, um, well, I was born in, in Newcastle and pretty quickly um, my family moved us up to Tweed Heads, like right on the border from New South yeah. Wales, Queensland. And we lived in a little caravan park, like right on this little bay. And, you know, like most people who, who live on the coast, they want their kids to learn how to swim. And, and so I started learning how to swim, not till I was five. Hated it, cried every day um just terrified of the teacher I don't know what it was but I just like I was anxious every single day crying every single session and um and just by pure I mean it's interesting when you look back on your swimming career and and when you're in it you're like you think you're doing all of it And, and I look back and I just think the things that happened that were out of my control that led me to a path where I you know nine nine years on the national team and a couple of league games uh Greg Salter was a, a new coach in in the area, he came up from a, a town called Maxville. Uh, you know, he got the the coaching gig at, at you know the only indoor heated pool in the area. Um, he started to assemble a, a squad of, of kids. You know, Chris Feidler was was there. Mm-hmm. We all know Chris, and he, he was you know my idol, and and in a in a sporting sense, still is my idol mm-hmm. today. Um, and you know, I I I got out to learn to swim at about sort of six years of age, and you know, even down to things like my three best mates, we did every sport. So each athlete, we each each friend had, you know, their own sport that they they sort of lent to. We all did each other's sports and we all tried to beat the crap out of each other in, <laughs> in each other's sports. And and funnily enough, like uh, one of those guys was John Wilkie. He was on the, the same Olympics that we went to in Sydney for, right. for downwater canoe kayak. Uh, Stephen King won, you know, Uncle Toby Super Series events, and and Luke Costello was a was a great uh, junior surfer. So that, you know, learning that competitive, like being in that competitive environment almost every afternoon, whether it be in the pool, the surf, you know, we'd play tennis. It didn't matter. We had there was three other people that were doing whatever they could to, you know, to win the the, the title for the day type thing. Yeah. So so we're in our in our squad, and you know, again, just unbelievable things that sort of come together our, our high school little old tweed heads you know we won you know chs state swimming you know five years in a row um you know so we had a great coach who was really patient and you know we 
you know, like I said, there's just a lot of things outside of your control that came together that led, you know, to the end result. So yeah, I have a very similar feeling about my career as well. You, like you look back on, it and you think, oh, that was all easy and it all flowed. But then, like, <laughs> when you think about it, you're like, holy shit! Like if that yeah. didn't happen, or if that, or if I didn't make that choice, or if that person didn't take me there, or you know, yeah. if my dad wasn't, you know, sacrificing this, it's like dang, like a lot of things fell into place for this to happen. It's- well, but you could take any one of those things out and the result is different. You know, it's like that yeah. book, that Gladwell book, um, Bounce. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, you know, you go back and you look back at athletes' careers and, and there are things that happened that were of no consequence to themselves that, you know, they, you, you take one little piece of the puzzle out and the whole thing could fall apart. Yeah. Now you mentioned Greg Salter. You were with him for many years. What what do you credit him for? I mean, obviously uh, he's an amazing coach, great man. Um, I haven't talked to him in a while either. I need to I need to get call him up and have a chat. Mm. Um, but in terms of um, his influence on you, talk me through that. Well, look, the first thing is just really patient. Um, you know, like Greg rarely raised his voice. Um, you know, he he allowed he allowed you to grow at your rate, which I think is super important. Um, and look, he was managing a number of other good athletes, uh, you know, even in my squad, you know, we had Sophie Eddington, Ethan Rolf. Um, we had, um, uh, what was Hayden's last name? Backstroke. I can't remember his name, but Casey Giddo was with us for a little while. Right. Like he had a really good squad of, uh, of swimmers. And, you know, he was very, um, I mean, probably in the generation where every, you know, obviously outside of the, the distance that you're swimming, you know, we all did sort of similar squads, but I uh, sorry, similar sets, but how we approached each individual athlete was very different. And, mm. and I think he had a, I mean, he had a great level of self-awareness for, for, for him and who he is and how to get the best out of himself. And I think that really transferred across to his athletes. Um, so that's probably, I think his, his best skill set. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up with a with a single mum, and you know, when you you know when you start as an athlete as a seven year old and you finish with that coach, you know, in your late twenties, and you don't have a, a father figure around, invariably that's you know where you mm. get that sort of mentorship from, um, you know. So he he did sort of play that role with me, and I'm not saying that's the right way. It was just by default, really. But yeah, I just think um, you know how he held himself, and he didn't say much. And, you know, I mean, particularly in competition situations where you're at a trials, he didn't change. He was the same on pool deck Monday morning at a training session as he was, um, you know, and he just accepted that sometimes things aren't going to go the way of the athlete or the way that the coach wants to, them to go. And, and that's okay. And when was your first experience with kind of a breakthrough, you know, in terms of going from that where you were to being part of the, the, state team, national team kind of thing. Yeah. Look, I, I think um, probably the best way to answer this, so I was, I was like quite a good 9, 10, 11, sort of maybe even 12-year-old athlete. And um, I don't understand it like how, but I just remember, I remember Greg coming to me at the, uh, before getting into training one day. And he said, um, uh, there's something I want to tell you, but I'm not sure whether I should. Because I was a pretty cocky sort of young kid, you know, and, and, and I guess probably had some esteem issues that I was, um, you know, trying to bolster by being cocky and, and a little bit arrogant. And I mean, you know, when you've got Chris Feidler in your squad, yeah. that doesn't last very long because <laughs> you spend more time underwater than you do on top of the water. <laughs> and so I got plenty of dunkings and, and that sort of stuff. But, um, 
Yeah, Greg just said to me, look, you're ranked second in the in the country. And to be honest, I that surprised the hell out of me because I hadn't really thought about, I was just enjoying swimming. But not long after that, I, you know, I was a late developer. I didn't start to sort of physically mature until I was sort of 14, 15. And so I was in no man's land for a long period of time. I remember going to my very first national age titles when I was 13 in, in Warringah Aquatic Centre of all places. And um, I came like 40th or something in the 100 backstroke. And I spent the next half an hour just crying in Greg's lap, just like devastated that, that you know, am I going to continue doing this or, you know. And I just remember Greg saying, and this is the wisdom when you've got someone who's a patient sort of person. He just said to me, Josh, no one remembers an age group champion. Mm-hmm. And he, he said that to me many, many times over that period of time. And I remember going to Adelaide the next year and I scraped into the 200 backstroke final in lane one. And, and five metres, if the race was 205 metres, I would have won a gold medal. Um, I came, ended up coming fourth and then 15, 16, 17 years of age. I, well, I won the 200 backstroke each of those years and I won the 100 backstroke as a 16, 17-year-old. And I actually remember in Perth as a 16-year-old, uh, we all know Michael Clem. And, and at that stage, he was just, I mean, what gold medal? It was just pick an event and win a gold medal at age yeah. group level. <laughs> and and I, I remember, I remember he slummed the heat of the 100 backstroke and was like two seconds faster than what I did in the final. But he had other events that night and, mm-hmm. and pulled out. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, there's a gold medal that I probably didn't. Champion probably didn't by deserve. default. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so, but yeah, I mean, sort of, that was, that was sort of my age group sort of history. And then, and then by that point, I was, you know, starting to make finals at open level. And, and um, I mean, funny, we've got a very similar story to Atlanta. I missed Atlanta by, I think, three or four one hundredths. And um, who were the Toby two that beat you? Uh, Toby Hainan yep. j- just beat me. He he got the place, and Stephen Dewey that time All right. was the, right. was the. I mean, he was head and shoulders of the rest of the country. He was winning by over a second at the, at the hundred meter level. So um, so yeah, again, in a bit of limbo, but then made my first team at the World Short Course Championships. I think in Malmo, Malmo, Sweden. Yeah, sure. Was it? No, it might, might have been Gothenburg. I didn't go to that one. Okay. Yeah. So that was my first team and, and then, and then sort of made, you know, the next sort of seven years of teams. Was there a period of time after that 96 letdown where you thought about quitting? No, I don't think so. I mean, the first thing I did was I, my, my family had a, a, a business down in Sydney that, that sort of worked in, in technology and, and I just straight away went, right, I'm going to spend the next three or four months living a normal person's life, went and did some, you know, lackey type labor laboring work for them and and did that until uh you know probably august september came back up in the pool and then the trials for that that 97 world championships were in in december just before christmas so no i I don't think so um i think mainly because i i mean I, i enjoyed swimming don't get me wrong but i mean the the positive affirmation that i got out of it was was what made me think that i was never going to quit the sport and, and, and I never got to the point, well, if I wasn't going to swim, what, what would I do then, you know? Yeah. Now, it, was, it, was, it seemed to be always backstroke for you. That was the thing that really clicked and really connected for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is, it, uh, is that something that was just natural to you or do, was, it, was yeah. it a decision you made? I think so. I just think, again, like I, I just sort of gravitated towards it you know a lot of my results as an early as a young swimmer were, were all around backstroke so uh, I mean I just 
you know, you know what it's like when you're a kid, when you when you're winning gold medals in an event and, and winning ribbons at school and all that sort of stuff. You you just sort of spend more time and try and try and improve it. Um, I I wish I had have done freestyle. I really enjoyed freestyle, um, but you know at that time that the, the the program sort of didn't lend itself to both sprint sides, backstroke and freestyle. They, they tend to clash a little bit early in the program. Yeah. I just looked on your Wikipedia page, mate. The, uh, the world, cha- world, <laughs> world championships in Goth- uh, Gothenburg, Sweden, 1998. <laughs> but um, you ended up having some short court success before 2000, right? Where, where did you win the 200 backstroke? So that was 99 in Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's actually like a, something I'm really really proud of actually i i um from memory i think i think the Pampak trials for for 99 were just before the world championships in hong kong so i'm pretty sure we literally went from brisbane um and i and i, I was swimming i mean i just scraped in um to the team but i was swimming horribly and and i i remember you know from i, I think i was selected for the 200 backstroke and I came third and I was probably lucky to be selected, to be honest. And then 10 days later, I'm a world champion. You know, I was, I was really proud that I was able to turn that around. Um, and, and, you know, like I, I remember at the end of the event in, in Hong Kong, um, I think there were five gold medalists at that event and Greg wasn't selected to the event. So Barry Prime had, had me at that event and coaches of the athletes that won the gold medals were asked to, to get up and, and you know, say something about the, the gold medalist. And you know, I mean, here's a little old Josh Watson, just one of he's a world championship. And you know, the, I think from memory, the the gold medalists were were Dunny, Matt Dunn in the 400 IM, um, Grant Hackett won the 1500, Ian Thorpe won the 200, and I think Klimi might have won the 100 fly. Mm. I mean, look at those names. <laughs> you wonder why I was thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And I just remember Barry Prime getting up and just said some really, really nice things. And that was like, honestly, the proudest moment at a, at a performance level in my my career, even above, you know, representing in Sydney and winning really? silver medals. Yeah, wow. for sure. I mean, just to be named with those guys, you know, like, you know what it's like, but, you know, yeah. like we put those sort of athletes on a pedestal that, that honestly, from a performance level, they deserve. And, you know, you spend your whole swimming career hoping that you put a performance like that together and you do and and it feels great. Barry's actually a, an avid listener of the podcast, so I'd be very Is happy he? that yeah, you mentioned oh, his name. I, lo- I, love, I love Barry. He's just, I mean, is there a more positive guy yeah. like 24 hours a day? I just, if, I, if there is, I'd love to meet him. Such a good dude, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you and I were talking just uh, before we jumped on air about uh, a Laurie Lawrence story. I'm trying to get Laurie Lawrence on the podcast. I'm trying to pin him down. But, um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily have um, direct um, day-to-day type interactions with Laurie. But, we, you know, Laurie was kind of one of those guys that he'd, he'd made a name for himself in the 80s and then was being utilized as kind of a, a facilitator for the Olympic movement, Olympic team. Every now and then he'd come in and, and give the Australian team a little positive G up, you know, a little, little talk or something like that. But um, you reminded me of an experience we had that was pretty funny. <laughs> talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think before the 98 World Trials in Brisbane, you know, as you know, New South Wales Institute of Sport, I mean, everyone would come into a camp situation. And, I mean, I was, I was like, I, like, Laurie lives at Corumban, I live at Palm Beach, you know, like they're, they're adjoining suburbs. And, and I actually grew up, 
doing some swimming at at um at his pool at Palm Beach. You know, Greg for a period of time was known as a gypsy coach. You know, we were we were at Tweedheads Indoor, we were at Miami with Dennis, we were at Laurie's pool at Palm Beach, and um and I I remember he he like as most Queenslanders like. Most Queenslanders I know would not go and do a motivation speech for a New South Wales team. Yeah. But they just wouldn't, right? That's just the, the rivalry between the two states. But to Laurie's credit, uh, you know, he was happy to take the gig. And and I just remember, you know, I mean, he's such a motivating individual. And and he did this poem. And I can't even remember what the <laughs> poem was about. But all I can remember is, you know, we were broken up into, you know, sort of there was a, like an aisle with, you know, two sets of uh, seats either side in, in rows. And I just, I just remember thinking, thank God I wasn't on the aisle that day because he, he must've picked out as he's going through his poem, he must've picked out this guy who just was not paying attention. And all of a sudden he has just like open palm belted this guy across the face. <laughs> and, I mean, if you weren't paying attention, but after that, trust me, you had his attention. I mean, I mean, today you'd be looking at lawsuits. You'd be looking at all sorts of horrible things. But I mean, that's Laurie, you know. And and you know, he's such he's such. I mean, we've seen the footage. I mean, I'll occasionally get on YouTube and, and watch him go bananas in the stands at, at Seoul. He's just entertaining, you know. But but in the end, he's just got a great heart, and and that's why people love him. Yeah, I know he's awesome. I can't wait for. The time where he agrees to finally come on here and tell some <laughs> stories because I want to pin him down. He's so good. But I do remember that now that you mentioned it. It was such a great moment. But um, tell me, I want to dig into your Sydney Olympic experience a little bit because it was such an, an incredible time in Australia's history uh, for not, not only country, but swimming as well. And, um, and, and then it was looked at as kind of one of the greatest teams ever assembled for Australian sport, you know, that swim team. I mean, like you said, some of the names that have been mentioned on, on my podcast many times in relation to it, but you were one of them. So in terms of just uh, the build-up for Sydney, for you, what was that like? Well, look, I remember walking into the pool in 1993 and, you know, watching the announcement on a, you know, on a little TV screen and I, as a 16, 17-year-old. And like, to be honest, I think that's when the dream of, of, competing you know for my country in a home olympics was was planted and yeah, and, sort of, and, and sort of everything you know i still remembered you know uh it may be john fay i think it was whoever the premier was i just still remember them jumping out of the their seats and just you know what what that triggered in me was it was okay this is going to happen and i've got the next seven years to make it happen yeah um you know the build-up you know as you know when you're in australia like olympic the olympic trials is in a lot of ways, more stressful than the Olympics. So you know, nerve-wracking. Because, because so there's no, there's nothing beyond that. And look, leading into the trials, I I um I was swimming the best that I'd ever swum. You know, we'd done some a series of high altitude training camps in Treadbow. Uh, you know, at a, and look, you know, my if I was to be honest with sort of my swimming career, I was a, I was a great trainer. Um, I understand it now, but you know, as far as putting, you know, that that work and that effort into a single performance, you know, like I, I didn't come through with that sort of stuff and, and definitely know now that I, I suffered from, from some performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, leading through the state titles uh, circuit, you know, through, I mean, I think there was a particular event in Canberra that led into New South Wales state titles, Victorian state titles. I was undefeated through that whole period in, in the 50 and 100 and 200 backstroke swimming PBs in season. Um, and then, you know, came to the Olympic trials and, 
and look, made the, the team in a in a in a personal best time. And I think what was special for me about that that performance is, and it's interesting, you know, like unless you get to that sort of performance, you're not even aware of things like your coach maybe being selected for the team. And yeah. and you know, so there's sort of murmurs around day four, day five, day six. You know, Josh, you're ranked third in the world. This is this many IPS points. Your coach is, you know, he's in he's in you know selection sort of crosshairs. And, you know, you're waiting for the next, the last night and, you know, trying to jockey around what swimmer does this performance and is that going to push Greg out? And I just remember being in the in the warm down pool out the back and I remember Alan Thompson coming to Greg and actually Greg was talking to me and just said, you know, Josh, can you just step aside? I just want to have a chat to Greg. And I, I made sure that I was in earshot. <laughs> and just to the, the pride that I felt like for Greg, you know, to take a kid, yeah from seven to 23 and to make an Olympic team. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just stuff you just cannot recreate in any mm-hmm. way, you know, it's just so, you know, such a wonderful thing to be a part of. And I mean, the build-up, like you said, I, I always look back and I thought, man, what, what an opportunity. You, you, same for you, you know, like to be a member of your home Olympics, but then to follow up with the home of the Olympics mm-hmm. in, in Athens, you know, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. You just can't, I mean, it just can't create that. It's just, it's unwritable, you know? Yeah. Um, but to be a part of that team and, and look, I always thought, you know, like the superstars that we had in that team that were in their prime, um, you know, for that event. And you look at, you know, would you want to be them? And, and, you know, like, obviously I didn't right, sort of get myself to that sort of standard, but they all lifted the profile of swimming and just to be, just to be involved in, in the, that generational shift from, you know, 96 to through to 2004. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a period for swimming, um, you know, and we we're just so fortunate to be a part of it. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, everything around it. I, I mean, it's just little things. Like I remember those, those jets that we flew from Melbourne to Sydney on, like that the ANSET charted for us. Yeah, oh, I, felt like right. I, was, I felt like I was pri- flying private. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what am I doing here? You know, it's the Australian swim team and, you know, we're walking to the pools with, you know, in Melbourne with, you know, uh, like security escorts, you know, mm. like just little things like that that you think, okay, so I've got to, now I understand what we're a part of, you know. I mean, the Olympic experience was, was phenomenal. I, I, um, I read with Bill Kirby, which, which is why, uh, mm. you know, I love, the, I love your previous podcast with him. It's just such a great guy. So just such a happy, go lucky, bouncy sort of guy. Um, you know, just going into that warehouse and selecting out, you know, your mm. kit. You know, just think, just things like that. Um, yeah, I tell people that that story all the time in terms of walking into this warehouse and they give you a shopping trolley and they just yeah. say, all right, walk around, just start putting things in and yeah. just filling up the shopping trolley of stuff. <laughs> it's like, and, and that was that that part of it is all amazing, but it it kind of it. it it takes your head off you know it's like mm. you don't know what to do with it you know you're just <laughs> like what is this experience and yeah. and i remember um vividly you know sydney just feeling too big for me at the time mm. like I, I wanted it and i and i and i was like bring it on and it was so amazing to have it all but it was just almost too big like in terms of like being part of the australian team being part of this thing like you said we're flying private jets we're getting security details follow us around we're with we're with ian thorpe who's the biggest athlete on the planet you know and um, yeah. kieran perkins and people like this but and then and then, you know, the size of the, the games itself and opening ceremonies and just everything about it was just, it was almost too big for me to take in, right? 
Well, I, I completely understand what you're saying. I mean, even down to like, you know, the first night, I mean, I didn't do the opening ceremony because, you know, I just, I, I'm there to get a result and and I knew I was always going to do the closing ceremony. And and so I rested up that that night, you know, even, I mean, I, I still remember being on pool deck about halfway through the final session for day one, deliberating. Do I watch this freestyle relay? Do I go home? When was your event? Day two. Day two. Morning okay. of day two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... I probably left it too late and I literally, you know, walk into our sort of commune area where the TV is literally as the gun goes off and I'm, and I'm, you know, they win the event and I'm like, God damn it. I wish I had been there, but do I, do I, what's my emotional state tomorrow morning witnessing that like on pool deck, I would have probably been a banana, Yeah. you know? So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. You want to absorb everything, but then, you know, controlling your emotions um, you know, the reason you're there is to compete. So it's this double-edged sword type thing, you know. And I remember, you know, I remember swimming my heat. Um, I was next to next to Lenny Kreiselberg in the heat, and um, you know, I remember coming off the wall, and I did this amazing turn. I came, I, I turned behind him and, and outturned him, and and at that stage, no one outturns, you know, Lenny Kreiselberg. And you've got the kids, fifteen thousand kids, just like you can hear the scream. It's like, mm. and then you know, finish your race get into the warm down pool and the emotion was so intense. I just vomited, like threw up, like yeah. all in the, you know, in the, in the, in the pool gutter. And then I'm worried. I'm like, do my competitors see that? I don't want to, I don't want to see, I don't want them seeing this as weakness or, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I tried to hide it and, and uh, mate, it's just, it's, you know, you know how intense the whole sort of situation is. So, yeah. um, you know, and then, you know, it, again, in my, my final, I, it's just, again, it's ironic, you know, my best time would have got me bronze by a, a hundred and I, and I'm getting fourth, you know, like, and, you know, they always say that, you know, in, in a Olympic final, the two most disappointed people are the people who get silver and the people, the person who gets fourth, because they get nothing. Yeah. yeah so, fourth, fourth at the Olympics is not the place you want to be. <laughs> it's not, it, it's, it's not, particularly when you know your best or equal to your best. Um, you know, and gotcha. I was consistent. I, I think I was 50 between 54.7 and 54.9 over three events. And, you know, as a result, got an opportunity to swim the heat for the medley relay and qualified those guys for a silver medal, which which was great. Um, but, yeah, mate, I mean, the Olympic experience, you just, you know, you got the period of time where you're competing and and it's it's something that you never want to end, but you know you can't, it can't keep going because it's just too, it's too much. You know, just as, you know, just the same as, you know, when the swimming finishes and now you're into party time, you're having a great time and you're essentially, you're essentially nocturnal and you're having a great time, but you know, it can't keep going because you're going to destroy yourself. Um, But again, you know, I just remember, I'll never forget my dad picking me up, you know, from, I guess, the exit point of, of, um, you know, the the Olympic compound. And I, I just remember you know, the torches was still going and I'm in the, I'm in the back seat on the left-hand side of the car and I'm just watching the torch. And I can, mate, I can tell you right now, this, this wells up in me. There, there are trees starting to come to block my vision of the torch and I'm jockeying my head. I just did not want to let go of the torch. You know, it was like, I didn't want this to end. Mm. And, you know, when I just accepted that that was the last time I was going to see the torch, you know, as an Olympian for that event, mate, it was, I, I, was, I, I had tears running down my cheeks. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an emotional moment to remember, man. I'm glad you remember that vividly like that because uh, we, we do have moments like that for sure. Or you just don't want that moment to end. And I guess that's why a lot of Olympians end up um, going through some sort of depressive moment after it, because it's such a high, how do you, mm -hmm. you know, what do you do when you come off that? And then a lot of, a lot of athletes, come off that and think, well, what do I do with the rest of my life now? Because you hadn't really set your life up. It's like your whole life has been centered around being an Olympic athlete as well. Yeah, mate, it is, it is hard. And uh, it's, it's funny you sort of you, um, it, you bring that up because, I mean, like, you know, every athlete has to retire at some point. And, and I, remember, I remember sort of into my retirement, I remember listening to Shane Webke, the rugby league player on, um, on ABC Grandstand. And look, he was successful. He'd set himself up with a career. He'd been smart with his money, but there was still something missing, you know. And I, I really believe that, you know, at the at the time the education was if, if it was that if you had a degree, if you had something to go to, you know, that, that that was deemed a successful transition. But athletes have got something special in them, and it's it's been bred in them through their experience from a very young age. And if they're not challenging themselves at a high performance level, they're just not they're just not as happy as what they yep. possibly could be. Now, there's obviously um, if, you know, exceptions to that, but you know, it's very difficult to take something away where there's so much at risk and the opportunity for growth and improvement is, is so strong. Um, you know, for me, a, a successful transition is, is someone who has been able to set that up, um, you know, while they're an athlete for when they're not an athlete. Um, and again, I go back to Chris Feidler, like mm -hmm. you, you want to, you want a case study on how to transition from sport study, Chris. Yeah. 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 And it's difficult, mate. It is difficult. Uh, it's, it's one of the conversations, like I have an athlete right now, Bruno Fratus and, and Bruno for the past few years, he's been one of the top sprinters in the world, one of the most dominant sprinters in the world. But part of my conversation is like Bruno at some point soon, I don't know when it's mm -hmm. going to end. You're not going to be the fastest swimmer in the world or one of the top swimmers in the world you've got to transition what is that going to look like for you i want you to focus on being the best athlete i want you to focus on winning world titles and olympic games but i also want you to focus on what's next and so part of our conversation has been trying to get him to think about that transitional period because i i see how much he puts into it and it's just like you and i it, it there's a there's an end point and and sometimes it can be um not something that you even plan it could be an injury or it could yeah. just be a disappointment where it's like, that's it. Like you're not going any further. And it's like, whoa, today's the day. I wasn't expecting it. I was thinking maybe another year or two and boom, it's just on you. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's something that you do have to think about. But um, I did want to go back to, to Sydney maybe for a second and just say, sure. look, I've uh, become very close with Lenny Krasselberg and uh, he's just, <laughs> he's, a, he's an incredible human. I love him. What was it like to compete against that man? Well, look, I mean, I'm going to completely out myself and, um, it was it was tough. I mean, the guy is larger than life. Uh, he's a good-looking rooster. Yeah, he's he's a good guy. Like yeah. I mean, and when I say good, he's he's exceptionally good. Yeah. And I, you know, when I was when I was competing with him, you know, you look at you're trying to look for a chink somewhere, uh -huh. you know. And and Lenny would, you know, in any marshalling area or, or ready room, he would go around and wish all of his competitors good luck. Mm -hmm. Right. That was, that was something that he did. And because, you know, at the time, you know, like obviously I respected the guy, how, how could you not? And, and the little that I had to do with him again, take the athlete away, you respect him, but he's still a competitor. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And and you know you know whether this is true or not, and and you know kudos to him if it if it is in a sense, and and maybe this is back to me, and I guess my 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 sense of you know getting the value out of the performance that I'd put in in the training pool. You know, part of me thought he was doing it because he's a good guy, and the other part of it was he's in a sense he's saying, "Good luck, you're racing for second. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, like props to him. You know, now I've, I think at Sydney we we might have been on a bus somewhere, or maybe it was at a different competition. It might have even been um, you know during the the World Cup series you know, through Europe. And I remember we, we sat next to each other. Honestly, we had the, the best half an hour conversation that you could ever have with a competitor. And mm-hmm. nothing about it was swimming. It was about life. And at that time, he was investing in real estate. And what does life look like, you know, after that? And, you know, like you, you, you listen to the podcast that you did with him. And, and, you know, like you feel a little bit sheepish that you would think that someone would be deliberately, mm-hmm. you know, planting something in your mind at a pretty cool, pretty critical point, yeah. you know, pre-race. But whether he did, whether he didn't, whether that was his motivation or whether it wasn't, that's irrelevant. The guy is, he's an amazing human. He is uh, to the point where you hate the fact that he's such an amazing human. You know, he's <laughs> yeah, like, like you said, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. like, it's almost like you want to be like, fuck, fuck off, Lenny. Like, yeah, like give me some but space. He is, he is a benchmark. Like he is yeah. a benchmark. He just is, you know, yeah. and you know, like as men, we need that for sure. Yeah, no, you're right. He had he was the he was the total package, and I I would have hated to compete against him. I had my own competitors who I feel similar to that, but mm-hmm. but I think when you're when you're that good as well, like it's just a confidence that you have, and that confidence yeah. spills over to someone who may not be as confident as yeah. as Lenny, like myself. If I was to be in the same situation, and you and you start to think a certain negativity about somebody that's just being nice and confident because he's so, he's so sure of himself. That's it. Yeah. Look, without question, it's, it, that was a deficiency in me, not yeah. in him yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I, and I've, I had very similar experience myself at that point in time, you know, like he, he, some of my competitors were six foot six, six foot seven, <laughs> you know, giant men, you know, and I'm, I'm like, how, how am I supposed to beat that? Like I'm here because I, I'm, I want to, I want to give it a crack. My family's outside, you know, my friends, everyone I went to school was out there thinking I'm going to win, but like, I'm in here in this room stuck with these guys. Like <laughs> these guys are real swimmers, man. <laughs> they don't fuck around. And, and Lenny was definitely in that category. He was, he was, um, he was swimming hot at the Sydney Olympics and that must be tough. Like, cause you have these ideas of wanting to win gold, right? Like, cause it's your home Olympics. You, you, and then your, your teammates are winning gold. And so you have this feeling of like, man, I want to do the same thing and set my life up and be a great teammate and all that. And then Lenny Kraselberg work walks in the room. It's like, I got to beat that son of a bitch to do, do all that. And so there is that, there's that thought of doubt, right? For sure. And I think, you know, that's, it comes back to sort of one of the great mistakes I think we all make is, is, you know, results goals and outcome goals, you know, like you cannot control, you know, what anyone else does on race day. All you can do is, is the best that you can do. And, and look, I was really guilty of that. Um, I mean, hard to, when you got someone of the likes of Lenny, who I think was undefeated from like 97 yeah. through to 2001, something yeah. like that. Um you know, in, in his main event. So, yeah, I, I think um, 
it's really, really important to keep your eyes on you, you and your improvement rather than look at anyone else. Now, do you remember anything specific about being on the Australian team? Any, any stories, any team meetings, any um, uh, maybe some interactions you had with, with teammates, you know, um, any interesting stories from that period of time of the Sydney Olympics specifically? Um, well, I mean, I can, I can, I can recall a lot of stuff that happened after the competition. I don't know whether it's so suitable for your podcast, but, uh, but um, well, I mean, you know, like I remember, and I was pretty fortunate at the time. A good mate of mine, um, Darren Wade, was production manager for News Club, which was News Limited's nightclub, which you know we spent a fair bit of time at. You know, so I, I remember being at the bar with like Josh Watson here, El McPherson here, and um, and that's El McPherson. <laughs> and and hey what's your name this is what she's saying to me so oh, josh what, you know, what are you doing here i'm part of the olympic swim team hey this guy's an olympian this you know and i'm like you're on mcpherson and you, you know like we be we were on that level you know for yeah. that period of time and again you know like super humbling you know you know having shots with sarah O'Hare and lachlan murdoch and meeting evander holyfield and yeah. and um you know just i mean that's you know, the stuff that, um, that's the stuff that I tend to remember because the Olympics is still a competition. It's too, it's still two laps of backstroke to try and swim as fast as you can to win something that doesn't change no matter where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You walk onto the pool deck. I mean, one thing I do remember is walking onto the pool deck and how many times had we walked into Sydney aquatic center mm-hmm. and the first time you walk in and the five rings are there everywhere. And you're just like, uh, now I'm at the Olympic Games. That was the first time, like irrespective, you're in the warehouse selecting clothes, you know, you're wearing, you know, Olympic gear. For me, when I worked walked on the pool deck and they had the Olympic banner signage up everywhere, that's when things got real. Mm-hmm. And and that was, you know, where there was a little bit of a little bit of fear, but also a little bit of, wow, I'm I'm here. You know, the the this goal that I set seven years ago, I've I've done it, you know. That's funny that you say that, you know, because, yeah, uh, the amount of times we swam at the Sydney Olympic pool before the Sydney Olympics is just like, it was almost like a home pool for us, you know? And then yeah. all of a sudden it looked completely different. Like, you know, the signage is up and then the, the grandstand is full. And I yeah. distinctly remember walking out thinking, oh, this is, this is my home pool. This is great. And as soon as I stepped out on pool deck for the, <laughs> for the prelims, you know, the, the, the heats, I remember I couldn't breathe. I was like, yeah. my breath, I, I lost my <laughs> breath. I'm like, <gasps> this doesn't feel like a home pool anymore. But same, I was like, this is nothing like the pool that I've been into. But I was, I was glad that it wasn't, you know, because, yeah. you know, like you, you, you want to feel, you want to feel those, those spikes in emotion and anxiety. And I mean, that's why we do what we do, you know. Yeah. Did you feel uh, like a letdown in terms of the total team performance? I know I did not making the, not even making the final. I I finished um, 13th. I I, um, swam in the semifinal and I felt like a massive letdown. Like all my teammates are winning medals and breaking world records and performing. I didn't feel like I added value to that. And that really disappointed me. Um, Look, I, I, I'm glad you asked the question because it's going to force me to sort of go into sort of places I haven't sort of considered, but look, so if we change the situation and I'm now an Olympic bronze medalist, what changes? Um, I think something definitely changes during the event for sure. Uh, You know, I think you put yourself obviously in a, in a, in a a more select group of athletes without, Mm -hmm. without doubt. 
Um, but I think for me, it was probably more, you know, we were, we were a team, you know, like, you know, what, what they did in the four by one, what they did in the four by two, what Ian did, what Susie did, what Grant did, um, you know, to, to witness that and be a part of that. I, I, like, I think it's, you know, some element of that is I did contribute to that. You know, I was a part of the team. I did contribute to that. Sure. You know, whether that be congratulating someone, you know, wishing them good luck, you know, being an ear for someone to, you know, have it talked to, what it, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I think I probably look at it a little bit more more that way. Yeah, sure. If I if I didn't make the the final and, and come fourth, you know, maybe I I think a little bit more like that. But I I try to try to look a little bit more holistically. And and to be honest, like. You know, looking back on my swimming career, I, I should have, you know, I, I should have performed a whole lot better than what I did in, in critical moments. So I got to be honest and say, I wasn't that surprised that I came for. Oh, wow. That's an interesting um, analysis. And I appreciate you kind of digging into that right now um, without having really thought of it before. And Sometimes I think of it like this, you know, like, you know, when we're hanging out and playing cards with all those guys that you mentioned and, and shaving down together and walking to the bus together and eating meals, we're, we're equal. I mean, completely. When I, yeah. when I talk about Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett and, and Susie, and, you know, I, I feel completely like an equal, like they're just normal people to us. But then when I look at it from a performance perspective, I, I certainly don't feel as accomplished as an equal to them. Like, yeah. I look at them as high, high level performers, people that were able to perform under extreme pressure and get the job done and be, be world dominant. And I, and I feel like I let myself down in that area, you know, for, for yeah. whatever reason, I look back on it and like, how could I have been better? <laughs> I, I tried for many years. Like I swam from 2000 to 2006 on the Australian team. You know, we traveled everywhere together. You and I, the yeah. same thing. And, and I felt like I never got to that place that they got to. And I'm, I'm like, why? Why did they get? If I was equal with them, why did they get there and I didn't? It's something that frustrates me. And it's something that I look back and try and analyze. But at the time, it, it just it was what it was. You know, like okay. there's nothing you can change about what happened now. You know? Yeah. Look, I mean, I used to, I used to think the same thing. But, you know, like, you know, when we're, we're hanging out in those sort of general times, yeah, we all... Um, you know, it all feels like we're on the same level. I think it'd be interesting to things to sort of note would be that they think the same thing too, right? You know, like, you know, they're not Grant Hackett, the, you know, world champion, Olympic gold medalist. They're not Ian Thorpe, the multiple world record holder. They're just one of the guys. And and to prove that, I mean, my story with Elle McPherson, like that proves that solid. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, you know, she views me the same way as I view her because we've found success in, in what we did mm -hmm. so I, I think you know there's probably a little bit of similarity in that in that you know personal you know inadequacy that that you know we place that label on ourselves it, it's not true and in a lot of ways i you know like i'm sort of starting to come to terms with the fact that by removing that you can be that you can you can finally be who it is that you were meant to be now not as a swimmer but as someone who's doing a podcast or someone who's working for fitter and faster or yep. you know someone who's trying to mentor a, a brazilian athlete mm -hmm. um if, I hope that makes some sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I've been able to transition from my experience as a swimmer to my experience as a coach was it has actually helped me had success as a coach that mm -hmm. I was able to then, 
you know, relate to my athletes, some of those things, you know, I, I can look Cesar Cielo was not an Olympic champion before he became an Olympic champion. You know, he was just an athlete wanting to, to try and win. And, and like, I think at the time he was ranked maybe uh, top 20 in the world. It wasn't like he was one of the favorites. So I, I, without a doubt, believe the relationship that he had and the experiences I had helped him become Olympic champion, but th there were certain things that were, were innate in him that enabled him to obviously do that. Were there anything that were there things you noticed about those guys being part of that team that separated them from, from people like you and I, like, was there anything noticeable that you felt like enabled them to have that high level of success or was it just sheer talent? No, look, I, I mean, obviously, you know, talent comes into it, work ethic comes into it. There's, there's no, there's no getting around that. But for me, it, it comes down to probably two things. One is just sheer belief that they deserve, they deserve to be the best and to get that ultimate performance. But I think they also had a self-awareness, um, you know, about them. And, and the way I sort of describe that is I know who I am and I know how to get the best out of myself. And, and I, you know, I've got a, a great analogy you know, who was a competitor of mine, Matt Welsh, um, you know, he, it's, you know, it's well known that, you know, he wasn't a great trainer mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, you know, his application to training and, and all of that sort of stuff, certainly, I mean, we would go on, on, you know, stroke camps or, or things like that. And I, and I would destroy him, you know, in everything that we did, yeah. but he had that, he had that self-awareness. He had that, you know, I, I didn't have that, you know, I'm in a, a particular lane in the final. You look left, you look right, you're dead. You guys are dead. You just don't know it yet. I didn't have that. And I, they have that for sure. Mm. You know? Yeah. And, 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 and to be honest, like what, like a credit to Matt that he, he knew himself so well and, and to get the best out of himself that he got within 0.4 of a second of Lenny Kreiselberg, mm. you know, with, yeah. with now, I'm sure leading into, you know, when I, when I kicked his butt at Victorian state titles, I'm sure that would have tr triggered something in him. Um, and, you know, I'm sure his training would have been on point for that eight months of, of his career, but um, you know, they've just, they've got something else. They've got, you know, like I said, they've got that, that eye of the tiger, there's blood in the water here and it's not going to be mine. That's interesting. Yeah. I need to get Matt on because we were teammates for a while and he, he would frustrate me at times in practice or <laughs> at the times where he wouldn't show up to practice, but he could certainly do things that I'd never seen anybody else do. You know, I remember Matt skipping practice for a few days in a row and then coming in and we had a, we had a 400 kick for time and he, he was on his back uh, long course mm. kicking backstroke. And I remember he went like 412. 400 400 kick for time like having three days off and i'm like yeah. how how are you that good i mean it's just sick yeah. that you could do things like that yeah I, I remember um i remember we were in a in a camp situation somewhere overseas you remember that remember that scene in mate in the matrix where where they're on top of the building and and um trinity's about to download that information around how to be a pilot for a from an for a a helicopter yeah and neo is is dodging those bullets and he's literally he's his knees are up there and his body's horizontal i've mm. seen him do that live yeah like 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 defy gravity yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's the sort of stuff that you know 
Yeah, I mean, he's a special athlete. There's no doubt about that. But but the thing is as well, you know, like we come from a generation where, I mean, the miles that we, the miles that I did for two laps is, it's just wrong, right? And, you know, that's what I'm saying about self-awareness. Matt found what worked for him. And, you know, people like you and me, we look at his training regime and go, are you kidding? But that that's, he got the best out of himself. That's what self, that's what self-awareness is. Yeah, I've had many conversations with Gary Hall Jr., the guy that ended up um, winning my Olympic event, both in Sydney and Athens. I, I did a clinic with him just recently, and uh, I've had conversations with him about that. It's like everyone else around him was doing what was programmed, and he was doing what was right for him. And people would say they did, that he didn't train as hard as you know myself or other people. And yet here he was feeling like he was just training as hard as he possibly could because he was doing specifically things that were working for him that got the best out of him. And, and yeah. Matt, Matt's certainly in that category as well. But, yeah. um, but there's also, they're, they're freak athletes. They can do things like yep. that, that you just, we just can't do. And I, and, and I guess that's talking about the Sydney 2000 team, the Australian swim team, we had so many athletes, especially the ones that ended up meddling, we had those athletes that were just freaks. They were just yeah. incredibly good. They were, they were separated from all the other freak athletes. They were just on another level of, of freakness. I mean, I'm sure you saw Grant and, and Ian do incredible things in the training pool in Melbourne, right before the Sydney Olympics. Yeah. I remember Thorpe getting up and, and then, and, and going 146 and just a, a, a regular little speeder, you know, in, in practice at that, yeah. at that training camp, just, crazy things that normal humans just wouldn't be able to produce yeah but, but again it comes back to they think differently and they do they do different things you know that's just why that's why they've separated themselves They're, they've literally differentiated themselves from you know everyone else uh and that's you know i remember sending you a text a while back and i'll, I'll never forget to this day you know towards the end of my career i did my, my weight training um at the canoe kayak center the aos canoe kayak center at um at miami there not far from the pool and you know, I was watching the, the national um, Stillwater team, K1-1000 and K1-2000 team, and, and looking at their schedule up on the whiteboard, and you know, they're on the water for 50 minutes or an hour six times a week. And I remember asking Glenn, I um, can't remember his last name, but the, the strength and conditioning coach, I said, how long is their event? He said, K1000 is about three and a half minutes, three, three minutes, 40 and they're on the they're on the water for like six sessions at 50 minutes to an hour a week. And here I am going, hang on a minute. My event's 54 seconds. It's a quarter of the time. And I'm spending three times as much time in the water. I was just like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And Glenn said to me, you're not specific enough, Josh. You're just not specific enough. And yeah, I remember I remember getting so annoyed at a podcast that you did. Well, I can't remember the coach, but I think they might have been, you know, you 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 brought you know, that sort of fresh thinking, there's another way of doing things. We're sprinters here. We need to get specific. It's about output. It's not about, you know, how many miles you're doing, all that sort of stuff. And and I just remember you, you saying, yep, we were trained wrong. Like, yeah. God damn it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of... 20 years? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of learning as, as we go. But it, it was it was right for the time. I'm sure everybody yeah. was doing it really, you know, for but sure. like there's the reason why people are getting faster these days. But yeah. did it piss you off how little I did at the time compared to what you were doing? Never, never. I mean, I, again, I remember what, listening to this on a podcast. I, I remember being at a table and I'm pretty sure... I went out the athlete, but I, I, I know who it was. Oh, Skippy. It was pre- 
No, 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 no. Well, Skippy's not one to talk. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, they're they they're an endurance athlete, and oh, right. and they said something to you, and, and you came back, and you know, basically said, "Look, this is my event." You know, actually, I think you might have even made a point of saying, "Hey, guys, you know, like this is this is um this is not cool. This is what this is how I do what I do." And they just kept pressing, and I, I just sat back, just shaking my head, like. You do what you do, let him do what he does. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it, it frustrated me for you. Um, you know, because there just wasn't that flexibility around you know, allowing someone to do what they do well and because they know how to do it. Well, I distinctly remember a time after Sydney, because the disappointment of Sydney stung me. The fact that I didn't make the final bothered mm. me more than than I didn't win a medal. That that really bothered me. I actually, I, I may have said this on a podcast too, I actually went to the track and field the night of the final. So I swam the semifinal, missed, okay. missed the final, and was so devastated, I couldn't go watch the event. So I actually went to the track and field, which was totally against protocol. I was supposed to be there <laughs> supporting my teammates. I know it. But um, I couldn't watch it. I just, it was just, it was so devastating. Because like you said, the buildup was seven years long. I mean, I had all yeah. my family, friends. I mean, I grew yeah. up in Sydney, tw- 20 minutes from the Olympic Stadium. Yeah. Everybody expected me to win a medal at least. So the shame and disappointment I felt was, was tenfold. It was immense. Mm. I couldn't bring myself to go to the event and, um, you know, childish, selfish, you know, um, immature, but, but I did it. And anyway, from that moment on, I said, if I'm going to continue to do this, which I did decide to continue swimming, I said, I am going to make every final that I swim in from here on out. And I, and I did, Josh. I, I made world championship finals. I made yeah. Olympic finals. I made everything for the next six years straight. There wasn't a final that you don't see Brett Hawke's name in. And the reason why part of that happened was um, I just made a decision that this is the way it's going to be. And and I, I, I took a little bit of – I took control a little bit of the way I was going to do it. And this is where this conversation comes in in terms of – um, you know, people looking at me and saying, oh, you don't do this and you don't do that. And, and part of my thinking at that time was, well, first of all, I'm one of the fastest swimmers in the world. And if you can do it differently, then go mm-hmm. for it, you know, yeah. beat me. And that, that was part of my, my ego that I brought on, you know, it was, it was, it was a, um, it wasn't the ego that I had walking around daily, but if yeah. I needed to uh, induce it, you know, if I needed to bring it out, then that's, that's what you were going to get. So when people would question me on things like that, I'm like, beat me, you son of a bitch. If you can do yeah. it better, <laughs> have a crack. And I, and I wanted to be the most dominant Australian sprinter in the 50 freestyle. And this is a time where you've got some of the greatest sprinters mm. in history, you know, Michael Klim and, and Ian Thorpe and these types of people. Um, so that was just my mentality at that time is like, if you can do it differently, do it, have a go, but you're not going to beat me. Cause my mentality was I'm, I'm going to be one of the fastest in the world. Now I wish I had to switch that mentality to, I'm going to make every single podium. You know, I, think, <laughs> I wonder if I had to just changed it. That, that's part of my thinking there. But in terms of, um, you know, Athens, let's say, uh, what was your experience at that Olympics? Look, I mean, so Athens was probably, my Athens was probably your Sydney. And I, I came into Athens, uh, Dennis Cottrell was, was my coach for Athens, swimming super quick. I mean, the sort of stuff that I was doing in the staging camp, uh, I mean, even shocked me as how fast I was swimming. And and um, I, I remember, like, I, I was placing myself in medal contention. That's that's how fast I was swimming. and And I remember... 
on the morning of the 100 backstroke, there was a sandstorm. I think it was blowing like 40 knots and you know, you know how dry Athens was um, and there was no roof on the pool. It was open air and, and, um, and I got caught on the wall in 50 metres. The flags were, were sort of moving all over the place and I, and I just, I got my feet stuck just long enough cost me about maybe 0.4, 0. 0.5 of a second. And I missed the semis by 0. 0.01 or mm. two. Oh, wow. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. That was, that was really heartbreaking to, you know, to, to be, um, you know, at a, to be an Olympian in Sydney and come forth and go so, you know, so far backwards in Athens when every indication was that I was swimming a lot faster. That, that was tough because it also cost me the relay heat swim um, because at that time, um, you know, Matt wasn't swimming as well. Um, I think our breaststroke leg wasn't wasn't um, sort of swimming as well, so they just didn't want to take any risks. Right. Um, so yeah, that was that, that was um, that was tough. That was really really tough. When did you hang it up? So, I mean, I'm the <laughs> I'm the poster boy for uh, I'm I'm done with swimming. I'm going to let it go and then come back. I I actually stepped away from swimming. Um, I had some personal stuff that I had to deal with in 2002. And so I didn't, I didn't compete at all in 2002. I, I think there was a Commonwealth Games and there might have been one other, might have been a Pampax. Um, I started to come back to training in 2000 and I think the end of 2002. I think I made, was, was 2013 Worlds, where were they? Was that Barcelona? Barcelona, yeah. So I made that team and then made... Um, oh, wow. You swam for a while. Yeah, I was there for a while. Did you go to 08 Olympics? No, so that was my last. Uh, Beijing Olympics was my my. That was it. I I didn't make the final. I think I came fourth or fifth. It was like it was a blanket finish. It was really really tight. At the trials. Um, at the trials, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I spent. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do after after Athens. I knew I was going to spend some time away. And and to be honest, I mean, I got a job. I was working at I was working as a croupier at, at Jupiter's Casino. You know, having a social life for the first time ever. You know, good bunch of friends, having a good time. And you know, like most athletes, just just no outlet, no outlet to challenge myself and and trigger those those high performance skills that I've got. And I remember making a decision to come back in two thousand and six specifically to try and make a third Olympics. And I think I started out swimming. I was at this stage, I was living in Broadbeach. So I started swimming with Glenn Baker at Southport and then ended up with Dennis. And then, so didn't make that, that team. And, and that was the end of the, the, the road for me. I realized at 31, I said, this is going, this is going nowhere. I've got to sort of move on and made a pretty sort of um, aggressive sort of cut from the sport and, and you know, realized that I had to rebuild myself because I'd sort of semi-tried to transition twice and it, it didn't work. So I knew I knew there was a whole lot of work that had to be done at a personal level. So sort of went about that and and um, actually started a business to help athletes transition from sport, which which was called Transports at the time, and, and worked with a couple of athletes and and that that sort of merged into something that I'm sort of kicking off shortly. So mm. so yeah, it, it was it was tough. Yeah, the transition side of things. It was. Um, it was hard. It's hard to let go, isn't it? You know, for sure. And and I didn't know yeah. when the right right time was either, you know, but I just, I got to a point where I, where I had some children, you know, I had my daughter when I was 23 and my son four years later. So by the time I was, was coming to the end of my career, I had, I had kids and, mm. and the rules with the Australian team, as you know, were, were, were kind of blanket, you know, pretty strict of like, all right, if we're going away, we're going away for a period of time and everybody has to live by the same rules. I remember going away at the age of 30 um, 
and and being on the same team with 15 16 year old girls and having to live yeah. by the same rules and thinking like this sucks like mm. I, don't, I don't i don't want to do this anymore it's not it's just not pleasurable i want to keep swimming but this is not fun so yeah. I, I pulled out that that helped and then having having um a situation where i hadn't finished my degree i wanted to get that done so but the transition's tough eh yeah like i, I um and the mistake I'm, I've sort of made at a personal level, I was I was engaged at the 2008 Olympics and I got married in October 2008 um, to my first wife. And two Christmases later, I remember, she actually went up to Rockhampton and, and I was essentially home alone. And, and that's when I knew something was wrong. I, I, was, I was sort of coming full face to, you know, the fact that I, you know, who was I? What was I? you know, all of that sort of stuff. And it's actually funny that I listened to on one of your podcasts with um, the, the, who's the head coach at, at Virginia Tech, Sergio. What's Sergio Lopez, yeah. Lopez. I remember him saying, and this was just really, really hit home, where he said, you know, that the biggest, the biggest danger for an aspiring athlete is a performance breakthrough because up until that point, there's been sort of two developmental paths, the, the human development path, which is largely by default and experience, and then the athletic development path, which is, you know, where you're putting a lot of your time to and where you're getting a lot of your results. If, if, you have, if you don't, basically what he was saying is if you don't have some sort of system or process to continue to develop yourself as a, as a person, mm-hmm. the minute you hit that breakthrough, your affirmation now becomes entirely athletic. Right. And that is there's no coming back from that once you're buried in that sort of mindset where what you do is who you are Mm. transition is an incredibly difficult difficult process but if you can manage to understand that there's the athlete josh and there's the human being josh and actually the development if you develop both sides if you naturally as an athlete you're doing but if you develop the human side of you that is actually a massive plus to the athlete then when you know the athlete side you know, leaves your life, you've still got this core principle of who you are as a person. And I think that's the secret to, to a, a good transition. And, and that's why, you know, I think Chris did such a good job. Well, what you said just there is what every single athlete's going to face, you know, and we, yep. we, we see an athlete like maybe, uh, I don't know personally, but Cleek Keller, you know, who <laughs> just found himself in, in trouble, you know, may, yep. maybe still just wandering and trying to, trying to find connections and got lost in a group that shouldn't have been lost in, but just, yeah, but, but every athlete's going to have to face those questions. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like you said, those affirmations are just so <laughs> powerful when you have success as a swimmer and, and then you, and then you desire it and want that again. And you, and it's like in swimming, there's a period of time where you can just train and train and train. Training feels amazing. You know, you're not under that type of cutthroat pressure, yeah. but then, then, once or twice a year, you have to put yourself out there and expose yourself. But that's the, the training gives you enough um, time to feel secure, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's definitely a tough process. But for sure. And the, you know, the great thing about sport is if you stuff up in the morning, you've got the night. Yeah. And if you stuff up in the night, you've got the morning, you know, like, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, when I started to develop this transports business, I, I, I did some. I did my own sort of research a lot with a lot of swimmers who'd retired, and a lot of the the data that was coming out was that less than fifty percent of athletes feel some sort of emotional, um, you know, perturbation post transition, and that was like I was getting in the high nineties, and 
And so I knew there was a need there. And I thought, okay, you know, at, at, when we were athletes going through the system, they're trying to educate us, get a degree. And, and I thought, well, I don't think that's, that's not enough. We need to, we're high performance athletes. We need to be, or we're high performance people. We need to be operating at high performance. That's where we're most comfortable. Um, then, you know, transports was all about getting these athletes post-sport. And, and I was convinced that that was the way to do it. And then, you know, the outcomes were good, but they could have been better. And then I thought, okay, well, how do we get them before they've transitioned from sport? And there's this sort of crescendo that's built up into, okay, this is my last tournament. This is my last competition, my last opportunity to, to do something great. No, you know, I'm too anxious around transition. I'm not ready for it yet. And then, you know, you hear something like what Sergio said, and the, the key is to get right back to the, to the start. And that could be as young as 12, 13, 14, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and planting this idea that there are, you know, it's, it's not just for when you leave sport that, you know, you, you need to stand on something. You need to have value away from what it is that you're doing so that you can stand on that when you're no longer an athlete, but you have to start developing that now. And Hey, guess what? If you do that, you'll be a better athlete in, in, in any sense. Did you seek outside help to help you come to those conclusions? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I had a counselor for a while. Um, I had a, a guy who's a, a business mentor who's, who's still, uh, you know, I'm in, in, you know, periodic contact, you know, once or twice a year. Um, you know, I remember Chris saying, you know, don't, don't ever not let, don't, don't ever not fall back on what it is that you've achieved in sport and allow that to give you the springboard that you need in, in, you know, later life. I probably took it a little bit too far. I, I really disassociated with, you know, who I was as an athlete and to the point where I would just refuse to, you know, acknowledge anything that I'd done in sport to a new relationship or anything mm-hmm. like that. Oh, wow. And I, I think, I think I took it too far, but if I wouldn't have changed it, if I was to go back because it made me develop myself, it forced me to find the holes that I had at a personal level and start to, you know, build some uh, substance around, around that, you know? So, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any advice in terms of someone that might be listening to this right now? So having, instead of having to go through that whole process you went through, is there anything that you would, you know, advise them on, on doing now? Yeah. I just think understanding that you're essentially two, two people that you, there's an athletic side to you, but, but you're, you're a human being first before you're an athlete and, and, you know, you know, coming back to self-awareness as a, as, you know, self, self-awareness, you know, I know who I am and I know how to get the best out of myself. You know, they've done studies on what is the key factor that, that separates no matter what it is that you do, what industry, you know, what skill set. self-awareness is the defining character that people have. And that, that has to be developed. And if you can develop that as early as you can, and, you know, if you're like, like Bruno now, um, you know, he, he, my, my advice to him would be to start, to start now. Yeah. It doesn't have to be contradictory or in competition to what you're doing in your athletic arena. It's actually complementary. It will actually mm-hmm. make you a better athlete. 
Yeah, I agree with that because it provides some balance of some sort. It doesn't have to be a 50-50 yeah. balance, but yeah. it, it takes your mind away from all that stuff that is just building up athletically and gives you some sort of identity on the other side. And I think that's yeah. it is like just figuring out who else you are other than just this athlete, you know, yeah. um, who, who else, what are your other interests? What are your other likes? What are your other passions? What, what is, what is places in your life that you can give back as well? You know? Yeah. I, I laugh because I remember, I remember a situation. I, I remember, you know, I lived in Brisbane for a period of time. I remember being in my walk-in robe and, you know, like when you're an athlete, you're, you're very critical. You're always looking to progress. Nothing's ever good enough. All of that sort of stuff. And I remember being in the, I remember getting dressed one day and it just dawned on me. I just, I just went, I'm a negative person. <laughs> it just came to me, but instantly I went, well, I'm going to do something about it. Mm. You know, like I didn't, I didn't wallow in, you know, life is, you know, this job sucks, you know, you know, I'm not getting paid enough here. You know, this person doesn't appreciate me. I just went enough, you know, like, yeah. like admit where you are now and you can move forward from that. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do develop kind of this, I don't know, what is like this poor me attitude. Like it's like you have this chip on your shoulder as an athlete, mm. especially one that isn't um, maybe as as dominant. I don't, I don't know. I was never I was never the person that was dominating the world. I always felt like the underdog kind of thing. You have that underdog yeah. mentality where it's like, you know, everything's working against me for some reason. It's, it's not, you know, you're working against yourself ultimately. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, it sort of comes to mind, you know, another you know, what separates the, the best athletes in the world. They've got no time for judgment. You know, the training session doesn't go as well as they, they planned. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't pity themselves. They don't sit in their own misery that it wasn't good enough. They take what they learned out of that experience and they move forward without judgment. So they're not fear of, they're not, they don't have any fear of mistakes or errors because, you know, their emotional response to things not going as they had planned, it just, it's so quickly removed from, their thought process yeah absolutely mate i also read just recently in terms of bringing substance to your life you just had a kid of your own yeah yeah so uh uh Everly grace is uh what is she she's just over two months so yeah wow. first first child and uh mate i mean it's interesting i'm sure people gravitate you know when they think it you know you find out you've you've um, you're pregnant, you're having a child. And we didn't find out the sex. We, we wanted yeah. to keep it a surprise. But I, I think you naturally gravitate to, okay, I'm a male. I want to have a boy. It'd be great yeah. to have a son. Mm. Mate, I'm so thankful I had a, had a daughter. Like she's, um, you know, some of, the, some of the fathers that I've spoken to that have had a daughter as their first child, they just, you know, they're as, they're as helpless as, a, as what a, a son would be, but they just require a different, kind of love you know like and and it's i'm glad because if i'm lucky enough to have boys in the future i'll be a better father because i've had a daughter first because i just she's brought something out in me that's gentle and soft and that you know you got a you got a boy you can be a bit rough and tumble you probably bypass some of that stuff but yeah mate it, she's um she's uh, i'm in love all over again that's awesome mate and look as a man with three daughters the the advice i'll give you is that <laughs> that that will never change from what they need from you that gentle soft that love yeah. loving dad um it'll it'll evolve it'll you know from from the time she, where she's at right now she needs to be held and she needs to be fed um yeah. and changed and things like that but as they get older th those things 
the principle of what they need doesn't change. It's just how you mm. implement it changes, you know? And so what I've found is I, I went through a period with my daughter where I'm like, Oh, she doesn't need me as much now. And that's so wrong. Like they need you yeah. all the time. And, and just to be reassured that, listen, I, I love you more than anything in the world, you know? So yeah. that that'll never change, mate. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And it's great because as you know, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a wife that just who she is makes me want to be a better person. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, provide as much as I can and give a life experience that that you know is um, is as wonderful as it can be. Well, now I've got two people. It's mm-hmm. just you know, as it's I mean, it's amazing how tired you can be in that first month. But you're also finding energy that you just never knew you could access. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. um, but no, things are starting to settle down, and she's a great, she's a great bub. She sleeps through the night, and she's pretty, pretty easy to handle. Awesome. Uh, well, good stuff, man. I'm happy for you and your and your family, and um, Thanks, happy mate. to catch up again, mate. Mate, it's been great to um to to see you, and I I mean we're only couple of states across right we need to we need to yeah get face to face and have a beer when yeah we definitely calm down definitely got to hook up this has been a, a strange time we need to reconnect with people but this is a great way to do it so i'm glad yeah. to see your face again mate thanks yeah, josh you too, mate. thanks mate see you bud see you buddy